0: This is Attention, the audio journal for architecture. You are listening to Issue 4, How Musicians Think About Space.
1: The score is Richard Wagner's. The performance is by the Vienna Philharmonic, with Georg Schulte conducting. But the enveloping, immersive sound of this piece of music is the work of a producer. John Colshaw. You are listening to the 1958 Decca recording of the Prelude to Das Rheingold, the first music drama in Wagner's Ring cycle. Let's switch for a minute to another recording. This recording of the same work featuring Wilhelm Vertwängler conducting the Rome Symphony Orchestra, was made just a few years earlier. And now, back to Kolshaw's recording. Can you hear the difference? John Colshaw was a producer who pioneered the use of stereophonic sound in classical music recordings. He had a vivid spatial imagination and crafted recordings that were immersive works of art. He challenged conventions of what recordings should sound like in an effort to attract new, more diverse audiences to opera, aspiring to open up a genre that he once called an exclusive closed shop. Colshaw was an outsider in the British classical music scene. He was born in a small town in the north of England and joined his father's bank before enlisting in the Air Force. He had no formal music training aside from some childhood piano lessons, but he was passionate about music, and while serving in World War II, he began submitting music reviews to newspapers and magazines. After the war ended, Colshaw landed a job at Decca writing liner notes, but quickly moved up the ranks to become a producer. At Decca, Colshaw entered into a culture fixated on realism. The most influential producer at that time, Walter Legg, declared, I want to make records which will sound in the public's home exactly like what they would hear in the best seat of an acoustically perfect hall. Colshaw, however, did not aspire to the best seat in the best hall. He grew up listening to recordings far away from the opera houses of London, and he saw recording as a medium liberated from the architectural constraints, the visual spectacle, and the social hierarchies of those venerated spaces. Stereo recording, he thought, could give listeners an experience more immersive, more dramatic, more accessible, and more faithful to a composer's intentions than could ever be achieved in a brick-and-mortar opera house. John Colshaw died in 1980, but left behind two memoirs. In this piece, we'll listen to Colshaw's own reflections on space in stereo, read by Alistair Stokes. In 1951, Kohlshaw and a team of sound engineers were dispatched to Bayreuth, the town in Germany where Wagner built his Festspielhaus, to record its first post-war music festival. The
2: standard of singing and playing was exceptional, and the festival opened with a burst of emotion when, on July 29th, Furtwängler conducted Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Before that, we had made acoustic tests during Knapitzbush's final rehearsals for the Ring and Parsifal, and we were jubilant about the results, even though we were working in less than ideal conditions. It was understandably not permitted for any microphones to be visible, which meant that, hidden beneath the cowl, they were too close to the orchestra. Or, hidden among the footlights, they were too close to the singers. Kenneth Walkinson overcame these problems by suspending a microphone high in the roof of the auditorium, the output of which he then blended with the closer microphones.
1: Colshaw and his DECA engineers were able to capture a sound much clearer than their rivals from EMI, who were recording the festival from the neighboring control room. But the recording didn't really capture the experience of being in the audience at Bayreuth, nor did it achieve the intimacy possible in a studio environment. It left Colshaw wanting more. He dreamed of producing rather than simply recording Wagner's ring cycle. But he would have to wait for two key technical innovations to become commercially viable. The first of these was the Long Playing Record, or LP. And then...
2: Within six years of launching the LP, the record world faced another revolution with the invention of stereo. From my point of view in the studio, this was the breakthrough we had waited for in order to record complete operas in a way that might bring the home listener into closer contact with the drama. Until stereo, a record was a document of performance, and one could not really expect it to be more. In the old mono-system, you could, in a rather primitive way, convey the idea that a character was approaching from a distance. Like Don Jose in Act Two of Carmen. You could more or less accommodate all the sounds a composer wrote in his score but you could do little to suggest the sort of perspectives, the layers of sound he
1: may have had in mind. In monophonic sound, there is only one channel. If we listen to a single channel through two headphones, our brain interprets the sound as coming from directly in front of us. Here's Kolschau's prelude to Das Rheingold again, but converted to a single mono-channel. In stereophonic sound, there are two different channels, and when they arrive at our left and right ears, we hear width and depth, as in the true stereo prelude to Das Rheingold. Stereophonic sound was not a new technology, in the 1950s. In the 1880s, Parisians could dial into live operas through a théatrophone, a device with a left and a right earpiece, invented by engineer Clément Adé. And in the 1930s, conductor Leopold Stokowski worked with engineers at Bell Labs to produce a series of unreleased experimental stereo recordings. Stereo remained a curiosity, however, until the late 1950s when record companies, including DECA, began marketing the new format to consumers.
2: Meanwhile, in London and New York, the backroom boys were making up all sorts of demonstration discs for the launch of stereo. Ping-pong was effective because of the sharpness of the sound as the ball appeared to bounce back and forth from one speaker to the other. But like all such effects, it made its impression very quickly. Technical imaginations applied themselves to higher things, like old steam trains pulling into a station platform on the left, and then, after much clanging of doors and blowing of whistles, departing across the centre and off to the right. What management did not seem to realise was that in the long term, people would not invest in stereo just to have the effect of trains passing through their living rooms. Unless the techniques that made such illusion possible had a musical application, the whole development was a waste of time. The encouraging thing was that most of the producers and engineers, along with a handful of artists who could be trusted with a secret, realized the musical potential almost as soon as they heard it. A stereo recording of a solo piano, which can make the keyboard seem to stretch from one extremity of the room to another, and there were several recordings of that kind, is nonsense. But what stereo could bring was a new standard of quality in the reproduction of piano sound. Two speakers providing marginally different sounds, and so producing a central image. If the piano is then surrounded by a symphony orchestra for a concerto recording, the full directional effect of stereo will be heard. Yet there were those of us who saw beyond that, in the sense that we did not think that, finally, people would care at all whether the trumpets were on the left or the right. What they would come to recognize was the superiority of sound, the ability of stereo to capture the strands of a complex score and, in the right hands, weave them into a composer's intended texture.
1: It was a tough sell to the DECA executives, however who worried that artists would demand higher royalties to record in the new medium. Kohlschaw could see only one way of convincing his boss, Maurice Rosengarten, to greenlight a stereo opera.
2: The only thing he feared was that another company might strike first. And with that in mind, I recounted perfectly fictitious plans on the part of CBS, Deutsche Grammophon, EMI, and even, yes, even, RCA, to get aboard the stereo opera bandwagon before anyone else. It worked. I went off on holiday with the knowledge that some kind of breakthrough had been made.
1: Colshaw's first opportunity to record a complete opera in stereo was Richard Strauss's lyric comedy of errors, Arabella.
2: Strauss's Arabella turned out to be a sort of baptism of fire my immediate concern, apart from the music, was to make Arabella into one of the first operas recorded in genuine stereo, which required that the artists should move about according to the nature of the dramatic action. To assist in that activity, I engaged a young man who was working on a Leverhulme research scholarship in Vienna. Yet even his considerable dramatic flair and powers of persuasion could not, until a great deal of time had been lost, urge the tenor Anton de Mota to move as much as one inch away from his microphone no matter what dramatic nonsense resulted if he remained in the same place. The ladies took advantage of the need for movement to jostle for position. There was the afternoon when Lisa Della Casa came rushing into the control room complaining that she pushed me, which Hilda Gurdon, hot in pursuit, denied. Eventually, they were reconciled and collapsed into each other's arms, swearing love and devotion. Although, as they made their way back from the control room to the platform, Della Casa turned back to me and said, But she still pushed me.
1: Colshaw wasn't particularly proud of Arabella, but he continued to see Richard Strauss's operas as fertile ground for spatial experimentation. For the final scene of Salome, as Birgit Nilsson sings to the severed head of John the Baptist, Colshaw surrounds us with trembling flutes and clarinets, while keeping Nilsson's voice at a cold, reverberant distance. It's a combination of claustrophobia and emptiness that heightens the feeling of horror. And in Electra, Kulshaw assigned different acoustics to different characters. They overlap and clash throughout the recording, reflecting the characters' emotional and psychological conflicts. Electra was too disorienting for some critics, like Conrad L. Osborne of High Fidelity, who accused Kulshah of violating the score with, and I quote, heavy-handed and tasteless sound effects. Osborne saw Kulshah's dynamic approach to acoustics not as enhancing the drama, but as a distraction from the artist's performances. Kulshah was sensitive to these criticisms and offered up a defense,
2: the question of how far to go in producing an opera for stereo is a tricky one. It is essential to plot and convey those movements and actions which contribute to the drama. It is essential to handle off-stage perspectives with skill and artistry. To respect, say, Wagner's careful instructions about the proximity of the various horn calls at the opening of Tristan and Isolde, Act II. Such things can probably be better done on a stereo recording than in most theatres. But like any other medium, stereo can be abused, and once it begins to draw attention to itself and away from the music it serves, something can reasonably be said to have gone wrong. The fact is that an abnormal acoustic cannot be sustained for long without inducing oral fatigue, and a hint is often enough to convey the point you are trying to make. In the closing scene from Aida, the Carianne to Baldi version, we used a normal acoustic for the tomb, except for the moment when Radames tries to move the stone which seals the crypt. The mental image of the entombed lovers is assisted by the momentary trick and remains when the acoustic has returned to normal. One should approach each opera on its own terms, and try to imagine what sort of sound the composer had in mind. Just because 19th century theatre design imposes a generally invariable pattern on orchestral layout is no reason for a similar inflexibility in the recording studio. The sound you should seek for Otello is not the same as the sound for Aida, Rosenkaffelier is not the same as Electra. To vary the approach is not a gimmick. It is simply the application of imagination to the business of making operatic recordings. For Rheingold, we wanted above all to have a great richness of sound for the big climaxes, while at the same time retaining a proper clarity. To use a crude and somewhat debased word, we wanted the result to have impact, a sumptuous kind of impact.
1: In 1957, Coleshaw got the go-ahead to begin his dream project, the first-ever complete recording of Richard Wagner's Ring Cycle, a monumental series of four music dramas about a struggle between gods and mortals over a ring granting ultimate power. The opening scene in Das Rheingold, the first of the four music dramas, is full of movement. Wagner's score cues the Rhine maidens and their pursuer, the dwarf Alberich, to circle, chase, clamber, dart, and dive through the restless waters of the Rhine. Colshaw allows some of that movement to be evoked by the orchestra's rolling musical motif that began in the prelude, but he also had the singers move relative to their microphones. Here, we hear Flosshilda in the center, Velgunda on the left, and Voglinda on the right. As Voglinda swims to another rock, taunting Alberich, we hear her move away from us. As if we are listening from Alberich's perspective.
0: <laughs>
1: when Alberich gives up on wooing the Rhine maidens and instead makes off with their gold. Diving to the bottom of the river, we are now listening from the perspective of the Rhine maidens. These shifting perspectives continue throughout Das Rheingold and the entire Ring cycle. Rather than disorient, they heighten the emotional impact of the music and make us aware of two opposing scales in the drama. The epic scale of that struggle between gods and mortals, and the intimate scale of the characters' inner psychological lives. We witness horrifying scenes from a panoramic perspective, such as in scene three, when Alberich terrorizes his nibelung slaves. Just a few moments later, Kolschaw pulls us in, right up close to Alberich, to hear him whisper his innermost thoughts. Niemand sieht mich, wenn er mich sucht. Doch überall bin ich, der folgende Blick. So
2: eine Sorge, bin ich selbst sicher vor dir.
1: Listening to Das Rheingold in an opera house, we would hear and see everything from one vantage point at a polite distance from the stage. But Coleshaw's production is immersive. By exploiting stereo's ability to capture location, depth, and movement, he puts us in the dramatic landscape. Of all of the scenes in Das Rheingold, Kulshaw was most proud of the spatial effect he achieved at the very end.
2: The final scene of Rheingold is tricky because of the perspective required for the offstage Rhinemaidens. The voices of the girls have to sound on an entirely different plane from that of the voices on stage, and, desirably, they have to sound below the stage voices, as they are supposed to be coming from the river. Technically, this is impossible. Stereo will do anything you want in the lateral sense, but it cannot give you a vertical perspective. But sometimes there are ways of compensating. There are ways, quite frankly, of cheating the ear into informing the brain it has received an impression which it has not, in fact, received.
1: When it was released in 1958, Das Rheingold was not only a critical success, it also became a commercial hit, and the complete Ring Cycle, finished seven years later, remains one of the best-selling classical recordings
2: ever. Many people eventually bought Rheingold for sub-musical reasons. But when the novelty of the effect had worn off, I am equally sure that those same people found a much more rewarding appeal in the music itself. When you are dealing with unfamiliar music of any sort, the problem is to catch people's interest, and it seemed that Rheingold had that ability. Had we made a solemn, musicological approach to the opera, we might still have sold it to the converted, but not to the mass of people for whom the title Rheingold meant until this record appeared. Something heavy, long-winded,
1: and boring. The Ring's commercial success wasn't simply vindication for the enormous cost of the production. To Kulshah, it also represented a political and moral victory. Kulshah believed that great music could transcend the context of its authorship and performance. He worked with musicians whose behavior he found shallow, selfish, and petty, yet whose voices communicated great emotional depth. And he loved the music of Wagner, a misogynist and anti-Semite admired by Hitler and the Nazis. By opening the ring to a new public outside the limited confines of the Opera House, Colshaw helped reclaim Wagner's music from the composer's own beliefs and from its association with National Socialism.
2: Our lines of communication are changing. There are still a few who insist that the proper place for opera is in the theatre, before or after an elegant dinner, and that if the hobbledehoy insists on admission, it should be sealed off in the upper tiers. The sickness of opera has been, and is, that it is a very expensive and exclusive closed shop. Richard Wagner abhorred this attitude a hundred years ago, and we are only now beginning to make the slightest progress towards a change. If, by as much as a fraction, the ring on records has contributed to that change, then I believe that all of us connected with it have reason to be pleased.
1: While John Coleshaw's recordings continue to be feted today, his production techniques have, sadly, not survived, at least in the classical world. His productions were exorbitantly expensive, requiring a huge studio space, many ranks of microphones, custom built recording consoles, a large staff of engineers, and numerous takes. As recording equipment got smaller and more portable, it became easier to record live opera at considerably less cost. No longer was it necessary to hide microphones in the cowl or between the footlights, as at the 1951 Bayreuth Festival where Colshaw first recorded Wagner. Colshaw's dynamic approach to spatialization and acoustics reverberates more strongly today in pop and electronic music. He was part of a generation of producers and musicians from across the musical spectrum, like George Martin and the Beatles, or Teo Macero and Miles Davis, who realized the potential of stereo to go beyond realism and pushed music in new directions unbound by physical space.
0: This issue of Attention was produced by Willem Boning. The senior editors were Joseph Bedford and Kurt Gambetta. The production consultant was Griffin Ofeish, and technical assistance was provided by Brendan Smith. A track list of all the music played in this piece is available at www.attentionjournal.com. Visit the website or find us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app to listen to previous issues and subscribe.
1: Special thanks to Alistair Stokes for his narration of John Coltrane's memoirs. Ring Resounding and Putting the Record Straight are sadly out of print in the United States, but if you'd like to read them, you can find copies on used book websites or check your local library. Thanks also to my acoustician colleague Todd Brooks, who introduced me to Colshaw's recording legacy.
0: This issue was recorded in the Arup Sound Lab in New York City. Arup is an independent firm of designers, planners, engineers, and consultants working across every aspect of today's built environment, including acoustics. Attention is a part of the Architecture Exchange, a platform dedicated to catalyzing debate and discourse in architecture. This is Attention, the audio journal for architecture.